Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Next Pod. Um, so this week, we are going to talk about the way that slavery and the Civil War are taught in our schools here in the U.S. I promise I thought of this subject before John Oliver, who just a few days ago put out his own show, and it's basically the same topic. Um, so first of all, why is it important to learn about history? And specifically in this history, it's important to learn about slavery and the Civil War because unless you know about the history of race in this country, you're not going to understand why a black boy born in 2001 has a one in three chance of going into, going to prison, whereas a white boy born that exact same year has a one in 17 chance of going to prison. You're also not going to understand why the median wealth of a black family today is 10 cents to the dollar of the, media, of the wealth of a median white family. So there's a long history about the teaching of slavery and the teaching of the reasons behind the Civil War, and we'll get into that. But first, I want to start with a quote from Maureen Costello, who's the director of Teaching Tolerance at the Southern Poverty Law Center. The quote is, Teaching about slavery is a loaded subject, and it's loaded because everyone knows that it's not really about the past. So the backdrop to all of this, we should be thinking, is that even though the things that people are learning about happened or didn't happen in the past, but they have, they're really about the present. So that's why this is really important, and that's why we're talking about it. So, first of all, let's get more specific. Um, a lot of textbooks talk about the different reasons behind the Civil War and tend to say slavery wasn't that bad or mitigate the role of slavery, but those things are not true and aim to tell a more celebratory history than is really fair or accurate and and I already alluded to this but the biggest and best example of this is why do people think that the Civil War happened um, only 52% of people in America think that slavery was the main cause of the Civil War and 41% think that the main cause was something else but that's not true like the main cause of the Civil War was absolutely slavery it was not states' rights. It was not northern aggression. It was not industrialized versus agrarian. The main cause was slavery. So, and if you don't believe that, like, people, people now, kids now aren't really taught that, but at the time, it was obvious. Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy, literally said, as his reason for leaving the Union, we recognize the Negro as God, and God's book and God's laws in nature tell us to recognize him as inferior, fitted expressly for servitude. You cannot transform the Negro into anything one-tenth as useful or as good as slavery enables him to be. So that's pretty clear. Super racist. And also, the reason he's saying the reason that, they're that he wants to leave the Union and form the Confederacy is because of slavery and because of race. Um, and if you don't believe that, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens at the time, said all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution of African slavery was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. So when the president and vice president of the Confederacy tell you that their goal is to keep slavery, you should believe them. But... That's not the way that history is being taught, as the stat that I just told you earlier reflects. Only half the country knows that slavery was the main cause. Uh, here are some like, anecdotes from like super recently. Five years ago, a textbook said that workers were brought from Af Africa to America, 
which is just like a gross misrepresentation of what happened. Like human beings were kidnapped from Africa and forced to come to America to work as slaves. Workers were not brought. That's completely fallacious. And also there's a lot of like insensitivity and just like sort of like ridiculousness and absurdity. Like in 2018, a teacher asked students to list positive aspects of slavery. There were no positive aspects of slavery. If there were positive aspects of slavery, it wouldn't be slavery because they wouldn't have to kidnap them and keep them there. They would go voluntarily. There were no there were no positive aspects of slavery. It's absurd, and asking kids to list positive aspects of slavery is going to make them think that slavery was good, which it wasn't. And literally last year, a teacher held a mock slave auction in class, which I don't even have to talk about that one. That's just insane. So those are super recent examples, but like this has been happening for a while um, throughout the whole 20th century, and even now, textbooks gloss over slavery and teach it as wrong, but a wrong that was quickly corrected and not part of history. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Alabama textbooks said, with all the drawbacks of slavery, it should be noted that slavery was the earliest form of social security in the United States, and a jail sentence or the execution of a slave was considered to be more of a punishment for the master than for the slave because the slave was such valuable property, which is just, whoo, damn, that's fucked up. Uh, in Virginia, same time period, they say, um, that, they say that Virginia offered a better life for Negroes than did Africa. In his new home, the Negro was far away from the spears and war clubs of enemy tribes. He had some comforts of civilized life. First of all, obviously not a better life. Second of all, that whole thing is playing on like a super racist stereotype. Um, and then in Georgia from the same time period, this one is like particularly gross. The master often had a barbecue or a picnic for his slaves. They had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light. No, it fucking didn't. That's, that, that's like awful. And I hope that everybody listening to this can recognize how ridiculous and false that is. And I wish that more people, especially more kids, would recognize that. And I think that this quote from a Texas textbook like 10 years ago, I don't know if it's still there, but the quotes from 10 years ago is like very telling about this narrative that was formed about slavery, which is completely erroneous. It says, while there were cruel masters who maimed or even killed their slaves, there were also kind and generous owners. Many enslaved people may not have been terribly unhappy with their lot, for they knew no other. I mean, like, these these are just lies that are being told to sort of whitewash history and to allow white people to celebrate their history and to gloss over any wrongdoings. And those lies really don't explain why the current social and political climate about race is the way that it is because if everything was so nice and we overcame everything then why are there still so many problems so we need to teach a more accurate version of history and we need to teach what slavery really was because that's the truth and that explains the world around us um so you might be wondering okay how did we go how did we get to this point there's this old saying that like the winners write history. Like, that's, like, the whole mantra. Like, whoever wins the war gets to write the history. It's So you would think, okay, the North won the war. Shouldn't the narrative be from the perspective of the North and be sit, talking about the horrors of slavery and how Abraham Lincoln overcame that? 
And like while there is some of that, it's almost the opposite in this case because of the attempt by Andrew Jackson to re-enfranchise the former Confederacy. They allowed their narrative of the Civil War to happen. And the movement that I want to talk about is called the Lost Cause, which is the intellectual movement about reframing what the Civil War was and reframing how bad slavery was in a way that's false and that directly relates to those examples I just gave you before. So after the war, two historians, Edward A. Pollard and General Jubal Early, preserved the Southern perspective through their writing, which basically they said that the war was a heroic defense of the Southern way of life against the overwhelming forces in the North. And presumably the Southern way of life means having other human beings as property. Um, but that sort of birthed the Lost Cause movement. Um, the key tenets of the Lost Cause is that the Confederate fight was heroic, enslaved people were happy, and slavery was not the root cause of the war. So those three things are the key tenets of this historical movement, but also if you look at those examples that I gave you earlier, you'll see where all those things happened. And if you see like the Confederate flag hanging everywhere, that's the first tenet. The Confederate fight was heroic, and enslaved people were happy. Well, that's what those quotes were. They were talking about how there were barbecues with the masters and the slaves. And then the third one, slavery was not the root cause of the war. That's why 41% of America thinks that there was another cause that was the main cause of the war and it had nothing to do with slavery. So that's how it started. And then Confederate apologists in the early 20th century fought to remove all the negative portrayals of the South through textbooks. They did it in other ways too, like all those Confederate monuments are great examples of this, but we're talking about textbooks right now. So the main group is called the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the UDC, which was founded in 1894, and it was made up of female socialites from rich antebellum families. Antebellum means before the Civil War, so presumably rich slave-holding families. And yeah, they put up the statues of Confederate folders, but their main focus was on schools and teaching and textbooks. In 1920, Mildred Louise Rutherford, who was pro-slavery and an educator and historian who was part of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, wrote something called A Measuring Rod to Test Books and Reference Books in Schools, Colleges, and Librarians. In libraries, in libraries, sorry. Um, and this was basically a guide that was distributed in the South that proposed strict rules for what should be allowed to be in textbooks. And here are some quotes from The Measuring Rod. Reject a book that says the South fought to hold her slaves. Reject a book that speaks of the safe, that speaks of the slaveholder of the South as cruel and unjust to his slaves. She warned educators and librarians to reject any book that does not acknowledge the federal interference with states' rights as the cause for succession and the war. Any book that calls a Confederate soldier a traitor, a rebel, and the war a rebellion, that says the South fought to hold her slaves, that speaks of the slaveholder as cruel and unjust to his slaves, that glorifies Lincoln and vilifies Jefferson Davis. So those like are all things that she thinks were bad. And any what her thing recommends, and the measuring rod to test books, blah, 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 was like widely accepted across the South and even in parts of the North. And what it said was that any book that didn't meet those standards of basically telling lies, they would like put a big sign on it that said unjust to the South, which, I mean, is ridiculous because she's trying to say something that's not true. I think the industry she's trying to say is unjust. That's like, it's, it's ridiculous. And anyway, this movement establishes the lost cause as historical fact. 
So it establishes all these lies as the truth. And that's why we have under half of Americans today knowing that slavery existed in all 13 colonies. As I said before, only half of Americans know that slavery was the main cause of the Civil War. And Trump's former chief of staff, General John Kelly, um, went on the news a few years ago and said the lack of an ability to compromise led to the Civil War, which it didn't. And that's ample evidence that the lost cause worked and that after the war, when the Confederacy lost, they started to remake what was true and what was not true in a way that helped them and disenfranchised the black people who had used to be slaves. So I hope that's like good backdrop for a bunch of the discussions that I'm about to have. We have a bunch of guests to talk, to talk about this. Not all of them will be on this episode. Some will be on next episode. We have a great variety of perspectives. And I hope that if you, if in your schools you feel like you've been taught this lost cause narrative, you can sort of see that there's no validity to it. And you can start to try to learn what actually happened and shift your perspective. So I should mention this. The reason that we're talking about this in the first place, well, I had long planned to do an episode about this, but the reason that it's this week and the reason John Oliver probably also chose to do it this week is because last week the Republican senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton, uh, said that slavery was a necessary evil. That was just a quote, but in his action, he was trying to make it, he was trying to dis disincentivize schools from teaching something called the 1619 Project, which was something from the New York Times, a big initiative they have. They had um, that was about like learning the history of slavery. And so basically Tom Cotton was personifying everything that we just talked about in the lost cause and these ridiculous textbook quotes, which I'm sure he was taught wherever he went to school. Um, so that's why we're talking about this now, because it's important to learn the real history, and it's important to recognize slavery as something that has been so core in the founding of America, and how it's such a tragedy, and like the horrors of slavery, you need to like understand and see the horrors of slavery in order to understand the trajectory of America and who America is today. So we're going to continue this conversation with our guests. Uh, I hope you learn a lot. So now, I'd like to welcome our special guest, Kirsten Mullen. Before I introduce her, I just want to give a little disclaimer that the interview breaks up, the audio breaks up a few times. I'm sorry about that. This was recorded during a tropical storm, so please bear with me. But nevertheless, Kirsten Mullen, who grew up in Texas during Jim Crow and is now a writer, folklorist, museum consultant, and lecturer and who recently came out with a book about reparations. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming. So um, first, can you start with like an introduction of yourself, who you are, what you've done? So I am a Kirsten Mullen. Uh, I am a writer, a folklorist. I am a museum consultant, uh, the founder and director of an arts practice called Artifactual. Uh, I do a lot of work writing about race, about art, about history. Um, I'm also very interested in the performance of self, you know, who we are when we're around other people. Um, I began this work on reparations with William Darity, who is the co-author with me of From Here Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, almost a decade ago. 
Oh, okay. And, um, you know, we didn't have a luxury of working on the book solely, so it's taken us quite a while uh, to, to, to conduct the research and write and write and write, uh, a lot of rewriting. Um, and the book was published in April. Um, you know, when we were thinking about the book's completion, we had hoped, if we were fortunate, to receive, you know, a handful of invitations to do readings. But, you know, a number of things happened. I mean, first we had Marianne Williamson, first um, presidential candidate in my memory, who would even, you know, speak the R word, right? Um, and even though the reparations plan that she advocated was not fully developed and, and absolutely underfunded, she was the first person to go on record in the current uh, election cycle to even talk about it. And I think because of her, her courage, you had people uh, like Julian Castro, who also advocated for reparations, and also Tom Steyer, uh, neither of whom, uh, as far as I'm aware, laid out uh, a program or strategy. But it was interesting to, to see them continue this conversation. Uh, and then COVID happened. Um, you know, all bets were off with COVID. And of course, we have seen how disproportionately um, you know, communities of color have been affected by COVID. Um, and I, I think our book came out April 20th of this year. And suddenly we were hit. You know, um, you know, news media were looking for people who could talk about this moment. And why it is people are not just vulnerable, but just horribly. Um, and the conversation about reparations had a lot to say about where we are now. Um, so that's kind of the work that we've been doing. Um, but one other thing I would say, in the meantime, our city, Durham, North Carolina, uh, our mayor, Steve Shule, made the decision in March to talk with the council about you know all of these issues and concerns and uh, Durham North Carolina became as far as I'm aware the first city to advocate for a national reparations program and so they have been talking about you know a coalition coalition and other cities have been talking about doing you know supporting them in this in this initiative to basically petition and lobby Congress for um, for reparations which is extraordinary yeah yeah there's definitely been I remember I was reading about the um, the Massachusetts Senate primary, and both of the candidates come, had come out in favor of reparations, and they're both white men, so I thought that was really interesting and promising. And the state of New York has um, a reparations bill that is working its way through the assembly. It's oh. a very problematic piece of legislation. You might want to take a look at that for one of your future programs. Um, but it is working its way through, you know, through those various... Uh, various uh, steps so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that as well yeah. yeah um so what i'm most interested about in terms of your for this episode specifically in terms of your work with reparations is the connection between the history of the slavery uh, the history of slavery and then the present so because this episode is about the way that history is taught and we'll get into like the teaching of history but like right now because it relates so closely to reparations how does like very broadly like how does the past specifically the past of slavery, relate to the present? Like, how is that connection? So it's, it's, it's been a fascinating um, discovery for us. Um, 
so you know one of the uh, prior prior to one of the things that we learned while researching computer equality is that prior to 1830 there were over 100 anti-slavery societies in the south okay far more than there were in the north it's like we had no idea this was news um they uh but you know after 1830 you had southerners who were determined to keep slavery legal they doubled down okay and so they band together they ostracize they silence you know they do everything they can to keep these folks uh, from being heard and many of them literally many of these abolitionists just moved to the north uh, but you know i had no idea that there were anti-slavery societies in the south uh, or that they were so numerous and so vocal So that was interesting. So I coined this term dismemory um to describe the sort of systemic, you know, the systematic work of organized projects aimed at forgetting and distorting the nation's history, right? So um the work took many forms, right? So in 1860 immediately after the Civil War ended, um the Ku Klux Klan is formed. Um throughout this period of reconstruction, you have various arms of the Klan uh the group is called I learned about some of these atrocities from the report and testimony of the Joint Select Committee to inquire into the condition of affairs in the late insurrectionary states, also known as the Klan hearings. So these were conducted in 1871. This is the 42nd Congress. 13 bound volumes of transcripts were published a year later. Um and they were reporting from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi. Over 17,000 pages of testimony. Wow. That was fascinating to see. Um you you could and if you follow, you know, uh, the cases of individuals who gave testimony, sometimes you'll see early uh uh in the hearings an individual who's giving testimony in a particular case and that person might wind up dead 3 months later. Wow. Right? Yeah. So local people were aware that these hearings were taking place and they targeted these people and wiped them out in some cases, right? Um and if they weren't uh, if they did not have that as their aim, they often burned them out. Uh they uh you know called in whatever loans they might have. I mean, they made these people's lives very very difficult. Black standpoints. Um 1872 is the date cited by the Encyclopedia of Virginia uh when the term lost cause first appears in print, right? Um this is a book called The Lost Cause of New Southern History uh of the War of the Confederates by Edward Pollard. So Pollard was a very popular editor of the newspaper The Richmond Examiner. So he already had a following and this book was a runaway bestseller, right? So the term also is immortalized in a poem uh by that name that was accessioned by the Library of Congress by 1872. So the aim of these efforts was to mask Confederacy's role in as secessionists and traitors who lost the war. But the largest sustained spike uh in dismemory or active forgetting occurs between 1900 and 1920. This is like the 50 year anniversary of the end of the Civil War. And this is when you begin to see monuments placed in very public spaces, courthouse grounds, city halls, schools, uh many schools, military bases, cities are named for resurrection uh, uh resurrectionists. um Robert E Lee, Jefferson, 
Jefferson Davis, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. One of my college roommates, uh, a black woman, was a student at Lee High School in Houston, Texas. And she talks about, you know, the Confederate flag was flying, the band wore uh, Confederate gray. It was incredibly humiliating. Um, 1920 is also when the lobbying for Confederate holidays begins. Uh, at least seven states, including North Carolina, where I live, honor uh, the Confederates despite their being traitors to the Republic. Uh, over 1,500 such monuments exist, existed in the U.S. as of 2016. Virginia leads uh, by far with 223. North Carolina is third with 140. Your listeners may be uh, aware that the state of New York has at least three Confederate monuments in public spaces, uh, at least four on private property. Um, and, you know, again, we see the, the handwork of the United Dollars of the Confederacy. Um, so deep into the 20th century, the facts of enslavement and the early and sustained efforts of black abolitionists, who were, you know, let's, let's face it, the nation's first abolitionists. I mean, they, they uh, declared their intentions with their bodies, and they walked away, ran away from uh, their enslavers. But they and their supporters were suppressed. Uh, what we see instead is the rise of the Daughters of the American Revolution and the persistent and ongoing efforts of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, just founded in 1894, to raise money to erect these monuments. Uh, over 700 historical markers to the lost cause, right, according to the Washington Post. So they also did something very interesting, um, these two women's organizations. They conducted genealogical search, and they documented the lives of Confederate war veterans, and then they lobbied the states to uh, build archives that would become repositories for the men's history. So our country's state archive system was created in response to their um, request to have a place, a repository for these documents, these photographs, these transcripts, right? In some cases, locks of these men's hair. Um, but the problem exists today. Um, Ronnie Dean, uh, so let me back up. So Ronnie Dean Byrne of, of Pearland, Texas, um, alerted, uh, was alerted by her son, Kobe Burren, uh, who sends her a text from school depicting his education textbook. Uh, this is McGraw-Hill uh, Textbook Company. It's a world geography publication. And the picture shows a graphic about immigration patterns, right? And the caption reads, the Atlantic slave trade between 18, 1500 and 1800s brings millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations. So I guess, you know, uh, working on a plantation was like career exploration, maybe? I don't know. Not sure. um, so, you know, we learn from historian Jacqueline Dow Hall, who writes about these middle and high wealth white women um, who pressured school districts, you know, literally to replace their community's history textbooks with pro-Confederacy tomes written by authors sanctioned by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, or in some cases written DC members themselves. These were textbooks that romanticized the cause of the Confederacy. They depicted blacks as servile, happy-go-lucky creatures whose highest aspiration was doing the bidding of their co-owners 24-7. And they even omitted the voices of dissenting whites. I mean, as far as you can tell, you know, this was absolutely, you know, a universal understanding, right? Yeah. Then we have another uh, interesting historian, Charles Du. Uh, who was a historian born in 1937. Uh, he teaches at Williams College and is the author of a fascinating but disturbing memoir called The Making of a Racist. 
uh, a Southerner reflex on family, history, and the slave trade. So Charles Dew, you know, who was eight years old when he was given a copy of A Youth's Confederate Reader uh, by R.M. Smith, which was written in 1951, writes about this, uh, you know, the person who had given him the book, um, you know, periodically quizzing him about the book's contents, you know, to make sure that he understood what it contained, but also the values and traditions that were being, you know, depicted there. So he describes his own epiphany, uh, Dew's a historian, um, when he sees um, an ad uh, for runaway slaves. He's seen many of these ads. I mean, he's an American historian, history scholar. But this particular ad um, only listed children, and the children are listed by height and weight. You know, just like one might, you know, list cattle, you know, calves or sheep. And, um, but this really got to him. Uh, he'd never seen anything quite like this. And it, it made him kind of rethink, you know, who am I and what is this all about? And he kind of, you know, sort of rewound his whole, you know, life and childhood. And then the book was the result. Um, I also came across another fascinating book, um, Ethan Kittle and Blaine Roberts's Denmark VC's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the South. This is a terrific scholastic effort. So Denmark VC, as you and your readers know, your listeners know, VC uh, is uh, was the illiterate black preacher and a former slave who purchases his own freedom uh, with his winnings from the lottery, right? But he fa uh, he he leads this failed rebellion in 1822 uh, in South Carolina. Uh, he has ties to the African American Episcopal Church that becomes Mother Emanuel after the Civil War. Mother Emanuel being the church where Dylan Roof yeah. murdered you know nine congregants while they were praying. Um, so the planters believed, uh, as the Charleston Mercury posited, that um, issue before the country was the extinction of slavery. Right? That was what they were. That was what they feared, and that was what they were willing to lay down their lives for. You know, the hoisting of Confederate flags at military bases around the world was so routine. I think that people either didn't question it or thought, "Well, this is what always happens. What good would it do?" Uh, or if they had questioned it, you know, nothing came of it. Um, so in preparation for our conversation today, I conducted an informal survey um, about how slavery is taught in school um, around the country. Oh. And I don't know if this would be a good time to kind of to share some of these responses. I mean, it was yeah. fascinating, fascinating. So uh, I only, you know, allowed folks like 24 hours, right, you know, to respond. But um, what I learned was really uh, instructive. So uh, 11 respondents uh, responded, uh, ranging from 19 years of age to the late 60s. Right? So um, I'll start with a classmate of mine from our days uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, who said, you know, so the question is, what did you remember about slavery? Yeah. How it was taught? Um, you know, do you recall specific events or individuals or what the, what the tenor of the classes was or the debates, etc.? And so um, a dear buddy writes, to be honest, nothing. <laughs> okay. so, uh, so then I asked, well, does that strike you as odd? And she said, now that you mention it, extremely odd. <laughs> okay. So a younger friend who was educated in Iowa and Illinois said, U.S. history class, the most boring class I ever attended. The only time I ever tried to smoke pot during school hours 
was an attempt to make that class unbearable. <laughs> I think they teach history classes that way uh, as an intentional strategy. There is no context, no story, just a list of happenings with dates that you're supposed to memorize. You can say an amazing amount of facts of something without explaining it at all, she said. By teaching this way, they can say, we covered that topic, while assuring that students have no sense of it or interest in it. And she said, they did cursorily mention John Brown and Nat Turner. Ah. So another respondent, uh, who's a recent college graduate who grew up in Austin, Texas, said, I don't think we had entire chapters dedicated to slavery. Rather, it was integrated into, for example, colonial U.S. history chapters or during discussions of the Civil War. Maybe some illustrations. I think we were shown the Brooks, um, the famous diagram of how people were packed into the holes of slave ships. And so he's referring here to um, the Brooks slave ship drawing of yeah. 1787. Um, you know, this depicts this vessel filled to the capacity with 454 people, you know, crammed uh, into the ship's hole head to toe enslaved Africans um, squeezed into every square inch of the ship, right? But then he says, I don't remember any quotations from, you know, actors from the period. So then a second-year college student who was educated in Durham, North Carolina, said, the only black history I remember was a project I did on Ida B. Wells in the sixth grade. Uh, Also, um, uh, she said, once, and she also mentioned the um, once commonplace and now very controversial Louis Agassiz's photos. Uh, these are the, the, the daguerreotypes from 1850 of um, Rinty, you know, the slave who has incredible scarring, you know, from you know multiple beatings um, that um, you know are uh, owned by Harvard, Harvard University, and now the family of uh, family descended from those enslaved people are trying to get those back. But I was really struck by how many people said. They remembered very little uh, from their their classes. Um, you know, uh, a, a, an individual who was schooled in West Virginia and New Jersey says, "I don't remember learning much of anything at all. I do remember something about John Brown that sticks with me." She said, "I can even remember the illustration from our textbook, and I remember learning the most about slavery as a child from the Roots miniseries in the late 1970s." She says, we lived on an Air Force base in New Jersey, and we went to school run by the Department of Defense. Very ethnically and racially diverse student body. She says, the African-American kids stopped talking to the white kids in class during the airing of Roots. She says, our white male teacher addressed the class. This is fifth grade, eventually. She says, I don't remember everything he said, but I do remember this part of his talk. There had been slaves throughout history, and white people had been slaves, too. So this was a very this was a, uh, this was a very missed a real missed opportunity for open dialogue. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's you know it's interesting. So folks, folks don't recall. You know, there's no there's no quotation, there's no book, there's no tome that sticks with them unless they um, were exposed to literature. You know, um, folks who read uh, Toni Morrison or who read Chinochebe's Things Fall Apart remembered some of those, uh, you know, remembered some parts of, of, of those books. But the history books didn't stick with people. I mean, I came along in the, the rote memorization, dates, places. I mean, I could tell you more than you'd ever want to know about every Civil War battle. But what the significance of those battles was for, you know, my life, for your life, 
I couldn't have told you. That was yeah. not the approach that you know my honors history teachers you know were taking. It was push this information in your head long enough to take these AP exams, you know, and that was kind of the end of it. Um, so you know, one respondent who um, uh, was schooled in India and in Cambridge, Massachusetts, said, "I'm quite sure I never saw a history textbook while growing up, neither in grade or high school, unless possibly there was one in fifth grade at the American School in New Delhi." My only memory of the textbook genre is of a caricature of the carpetbagger, right? A sniggering opportunist intent on profiteering. Um, and I think, you know, partly in this caricature of the carpetbagger is um, kind of a racial slur. Yeah, right? for sure. So I think these were, you know, the northerners coming down. Perhaps they're Jewish. Um, you know, these are foreigners, right, who are coming down and interfering with, you know, our quality of life. But in fact, they're not really the friends of the Negro, though they want to profiteer themselves, right? They want to profit. And so then he added that the Cambridge progressive private school view of the world reveled in abolitionism. Um, you know, so one friend who um, is probably in his early 50s said that in his school, history was taught by coaches. <laughs> And so uh, his father, who was a professor uh, at Western Carolina, um, intervened and got um, you know permission to have history history classes taught by college professors. And so his honors classes, uh, world history, American history, were taught by them, and they were much more um, engaging, um, but but not necessarily um, you know clear on. You know who was driving this? You know there was so much more of an emphasis on this. You know slavery being this southern thing, yeah, this horrible thing that was happening in the South. That Northerners should avoid the South at all costs, um, but very little conversation about the economic ties that the North had to slavery. No one talked about uh, the fact that New York uh, was very close to seceding from the Union because of its ties to cotton. And the cotton exchange, um, you know, we, we talk about this in our book actually. Um, when um, I'm trying to think of the mayor's name at the time, who was initially pilloried, you know, because he proposed that you know our, you know, our future lies with the South and cotton. Yeah. Um, so we have we have forgotten a lot of what was actually happening uh, during that period, and I think. You know, it's time for a reckoning. We need some new textbooks. Yeah, I watched your um, I watched your interview with uh, Marianne Williamson. Um, ah. I loved it. Um, so you talk about how you went to a, conf a Confederate museum in Charleston, South Carolina, and it mentions the word "slave" only on one caption in a museum about the Confederacy, which you think would be everywhere. Like, what? Like, what is that? What was your reaction to that? And then do you think that this is like a common theme that like instead of like in the past, like I read something recently that said in the like in the past, maybe in the 50s and 60s, when they taught the history of the Civil War and the history of slavery, they just sort of lied about it blatantly. But then more recently, they sort of just ignore it. Do you see that trend happening? And then uh, my questions before. So it's interesting. Um, in the Confederate Museum, um, I do remember so well that caption and it describes uh, an enslaved black woman uh, who is not named. Um, uh, who made this amazing quilt, this gorgeous quilt. Um, and the quilt um, 
the quilt was was used to help fund the war effort, right? So they call these auction quilts. So you know, you make a quilt, and you know, I win the auction bid, but I don't take possession of the quilt. I give the quilt back to the you know back to the, the women's auxiliary, and they sell it again and again and again and again. And so an enslaved black woman's labor was used to raise money to purchase ammunitions to fight the war and keep her enslaved. I mean, it was just the layers yeah. of irony were just amazing there. Um, you know, the, the, the doctrine was, you know, uh, this is a war between the states, a war of aggression. Um, this is about states' rights. It's even about, you know, tariffs, but not about slavery. Even though all of the secessionist doctrines, all of the, the documents that were um, crafted by the states when they seceded, every single one of them talks about how important slavery was to their way of life and how essential it was and how hard they were going to fight to keep it in place. So they knew why they were doing it, right? Um, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, they recognize that we are the losers, right? We did not win this war. And there was a moment when I think Southerners expected to pay materially for that loss. Yeah. You know, they were anticipating the enfranchisement of these newly emancipated black people. They were anticipating having to co-govern with blacks. But then Andrew Johnson comes in and he um, installs these you know, new governors, Reconstruction Era governors, and he doesn't hold them accountable. And then he begins to reverse the work of the radical Republicans and Lincoln. And you know, you literally, you know, will see letters uh, from these Confederates, these former Confederates saying, oh my gosh, we're not going to be punished. <laughs> We're gonna get a pass. We're gonna get a we're getting a get out of jail free card, and everything is great. But you know, but you but you know, we found you know um, uh, you know articles where you know people were saying how contrite the the and how quiet the Confederates were. I mean, they were nursing their wounds, and I mean, you know, the the the, the land and the landscape was devastated, yeah. right? Because most of the war was fought in the South, and you know, people knew that. The victors take the spoils, right? And the people who lose are lucky to get away with their lives. And so, you know, they're waiting, waiting, waiting for that anvil to drop, and it never does. And so then you see, um, you know, uh, articles in newspapers that say while they were, while these Southerners were initially very polite and respectful and thoughtful uh, in how they spoke about blacks. Once they seem to get this this cover from Andrew Johnson, they become far, far more hostile, far more aggressive, far more uh, determined to make certain that these black people don't become full citizens. Yeah. And, you know, who could blame them? You know, they recognize there's going to be no consequences whatsoever for their actions. And so they proceed to basically turn the clock back even further. You know, so this is when they, um, you know, not just the southern states, many of the northern states as well, adopt black codes. 
and the black codes look a lot like the code noir that existed in the early you know 1700s except that they're even more punitive right so now not only will the black people who are trying to learn to read or trying to negotiate contracts for themselves be punished but any white person who helps them yeah. will also be punished and severely punished so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting turn of, of, of events that happens. You know, there was this moment, the seven mystic years of the Reconstruction, when change was happening. Um, but then we have, you know, the first of many waves of, of massacres, white massacres, uh, lynchings, you know, burnouts of black communities, the erasure, yeah. you know, of the efforts of the folks who fought the Civil War. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about like dismemory and miseducation. What are the what are the effects of this? Like, how does how does learning uh, a history of slavery in the Civil War that's about the lost cause? How does that affect someone's life in the present? It's a lot of effects. Um, you know, for one, we don't really know why the war was fought, um, and that's important. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, oh, you don't need reparations. I mean, you had 600 people who lost their lives fighting, you know, for uh, the end of slavery. Well, that's not true. Almost half of those people were fighting to keep black people <laughs> enslaved, right? So, you know, when you don't know your history, um, you don't really understand how you got to here. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of the war, um, the emancipated slaves had been promised... 40-acre land grants. Yeah, and a mule. And those land grants actually had begun to be distributed. At least 40,000 individuals were working land uh, as early as, you know, 1863-64 in experiments in the, in the, uh, the South Sea Islands. Um, but then Andrew Johnson becomes president, and he rescinds all of that, right? Uh, he pardons the Confederates uh, with minimal you know, uh, preamble. Um, he, you know, forces the Freedmen's Bureau to return uh, the, the previously abandoned and confiscated land to those former slave owners. Um, the only thing they don't get back is the slaves themselves, right? And then uh, he decides, you know, that there will be no effort to create land grants for these black people. At the same time, though, uh, this is one of those uh, factoids I remember learning uh, along with my sister, my older sister. Uh, in 1862, uh, you have the Homestead Act. So, so, so we had so many dates and things, figure uh, dates and places uh, and events to learn. We would create mnemonics and, and songs, and I can remember helping her with 1862, the Homestead Act, <laughs> Act. Department of Agriculture. I mean, I was in middle school, and she was in high school, and I'm sort of helping her, you know, but thinking, I need to remember this when my turn comes, right? Um, but no one told me that the Homestead Act, which uh, was a 76-year-old policy, government policy, that was begun in 1862, granted not 40-acre land grants to whites, but 160-acre land grants. So while the formerly enslaved received zero, white settlers got 160-acre grants. Okay? Wow. So these, uh, these lands were out west. You know, this was part of the western expansion. Now, of course, this land was not 
vacant. You know, this is land that was occupied by many, 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 you know, um, Native American tribal communities. Um, so, you know, this was part of your mission. Um, and so, um, you know, this was 287 million acres of land that was given away over a 72-year period. I mean, to give you some idea of what that land mass looks like, so these would not be actual states where um, they necessarily uh, uh, were granted land, but it's a land mass that would include all of Washington State, Oregon, California, Nevada, and Massachusetts, okay. or all of California and all of Texas. It's a huge amount of land, yeah. right? And so um, scholar Trina Williams uh, and Jennifer Mueller have done a lot of work looking at the Homestead Act. And uh, I think it's Williams who confirms that between approximately 46 million people were affected by these land transfers, right? And so, um, and they have minimal filing fees for these, these land grants. And let's, let's say you get to your, your plot of land and you don't like it for whatever reason. It's not, it's not the land, the land's not arable. Um, it's not close enough to the railroad station. You could trade those 160 acres for a different 160 acre plot. And many people did sometimes two or three times until they found, you know, a, you know, land that they could successfully yeah. farm. Um, many immigrants were given these plots. Um, there was one, uh, I remember reading one case study of a family, a extended family, uh, and they had a really difficult time on the front end. And so they, they decided that it would send the, the, the mother and the children back to Germany, which is where they were from. And I think for the next, for the next year and a half, maybe two years, the father you know, just spends night and day you know, trying to develop his property. But he succeeds. Right, and so what they have not only is a self, you know, a self-developed, you know, standalone property. They have land that they can leverage. Yeah. Right. You can borrow off that land. You could subdivide it if you wanted. Keep some of it for yourself. Develop it, you know, and make profit from it. But significantly, you have property and an asset that can be passed down. Right. And it's this intergenerational wealth that black Americans were denied, right? We know that wealth captures the cumulative kind of intergenerational effects of white supremacy, you know, these transfers of resources across generations. And, you know, if, if black Americans had been allowed to have 40 acre land grants at the end of the Civil War, let alone the 160 acres that whites received, we might not be having this conversation. Yeah. You know, Black Americans may have been in a better financial position today as a consequence of having inherited uh, these land grants. Or, you know, their families may have been able to send them to college, you know, with the funds that they were able to, um, you know, to derive from these properties. But the, the, the other question, though, about, you know, what, what, what is the harm of our not knowing our history? Um, I doubt very seriously that the over, you know, 100 million whites whose families benefited from these land grants are aware that their family had that nest egg yeah. or grub stake over 100 years ago. You know, when we talk about, you know, um, these kinds of government gifts or subsidies to black people, it's a handout, it's um, uh, welfare, right? 
And, you know, I don't begrudge these white families, um, those 160-acre land grants. I just think everyone should have had access to them. You know, but, but you know, when whites receive uh, these kinds of grants, it's a, it's a grant, it's a subsidy, it's a leg up. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's a stimulus, right? It's not welfare. It's not, they're not called welfare queens and kings. You know, nobody talks about them cheating the government, right? They took advantage of a program that was offered by our government. I mean, in my mind, that's what the government is for. We are the government. The government yeah. is there to help, you know, its citizens who need support, who need a leg up, um, you know, who need some equity so that they can become fully engaged members of society who can contribute back financially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the final thing that I want to talk about is, correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up in Texas during the Jim Crow era, right? I did. So that's, well, I found that out, and I'm saying this because I think it was something that a lot of my generation would, like, agree with. Like, that's very surprising because a lot of the way we're taught about it, it seems like so long ago. I remember, like, a week or two ago, it was, like, all across social media that, like, it was Emmett Till's birthday, and he would have been, like, in his late 70s. And, like, the fact that he still would have been alive is, like, shocking because in this time period feels so removed and so far away. So right. do you have any, do you have a reaction to that? And also, do you have, like, a message in terms of, like, how we can, like, remind ourselves that it's not ancient history and how these things are very recent, actually? It's really important, you know, for us to do our own, history in our families, right? Um, when uh, my first, our first child was born, uh, we took him to meet uh, my father's family in Alabama. And my grandfather holds him up, you know, uh, root style, you know, it says the fifth generation. <laughs> and I didn't immediately know what he was talking about. And actually only when we were researching this book did I realize that Lauderdale County, which is where they're from, uh, which is the northwestern tip of the state, um, and the three adjoining counties that that, that touch it, uh, between 1877 and 1943, there were 18 lynching. 18, okay? And those are kind of smallish numbers for Alabama. <laughs> you know, the county where Montgomery, Selma, and Birmingham sit, I want to say it's like 20, 30, 40 per county. And so, um, you know, my, my father's people, many of them still lived just a stone's throw from the people who had enslaved us. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I really don't, I didn't grow up with that experience of every day running into people who had owned my ancestors. So I don't really know what that was like, but I can imagine that the give and take was pretty, it was probably a spectrum, right? in terms of how those relations work themselves out. So, um, but yes, I grew up in Jim Crow. I lived in a segregated neighborhood um, for the first, gosh, 11 years of my life. Um, I do remember the colored signs. I can remember my sister and I would take turns um, standing guard uh, uh, while each of us drank from the white fountain. I do remember that very well. Um, you know, our family, avoided a lot of the public spaces that were segregated so that we would not have to suffer those indignities. But I do remember 
being, uh, I want to say, 11 or 12 and going to see my first ever movie. It was The Sound of Music. And we were dressed in our Sunday best and got a lot of stares, a lot of stares from the whites in the crowd. So we were the only black people who were standing there. I think it was a palace theater, I think, in Fort Worth. Um, You know, people, I think, were amused by us. Um, It probably helped that it was my mother and my sister, so three females, no males present. Uh, But we were allowed to go in. I mean, it was legal for us to do so, but very few people were actually testing the laws. Um, My family took a road trip to California uh, when I was five or six to test the laws. And um, I don't think it really occurred to us how dangerous that was until we got to the very first restaurant. And all the heads turned as we crossed the threshold. And this was my mother, uh, my grandmother, my sister, and me. My grandfather, who was a minister, couldn't come with us because he was expected to be in the pulpit yeah. on Sundays. So here are these four, you know, females. Um, and I should say my grandmother's like four foot ten. You know, my mom's five one. Anyway, small people. <laughs> and all of a sudden it hit us like, what were we thinking <laughs> to do this? And you can see the this young white woman who is the, um, uh, what's the title? But the, the person who seats you. The waiter? Like waitress? Well, not just the waitress, but you know, the person who greets you. Oh, the hostess. You know, yes, the hostess. Yes, okay. And so she's looking at, we presume, the owner, you know, trying to get a signal like, am I yeah. supposed to let these people in? Like, what am I going to do? And so eventually, you know, she gets the signal and we come in, but then we're worried like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, because the rumors were that people would spit in your food or they put ground glass in your food. Oh my God. And we're thinking we have put ourselves in danger, you know, to test this law. Yeah. But that was the kind of family I grew up in. Um, you know, I can remember um, my family marched uh, summer, um, the summer that, uh, it was Freedom Summer, the summer that a uh, white woman, Viola Liuzzo, was murdered uh, during this, the, the march was to Selma. Um, and this is also when uh, an Episcopal priest, uh, Father Jonathan Myrick Daniels, is shot in, in, in you know, close range by a white store owner. He and a young black uh, girl, she's like 17 years old, Ruby Sales. Um, they just go in. They, they were doing voter registration uh, in Haynesville, Alabama. And, um, you know, they just go to the store to get a drink, you know, to get some, uh, probably a soda. Yeah. And um, Tom Coleman, I think is the, the, the clerk's name. He was a, a recently, you know, deputized, you know, mil- a military guy. Um, he takes exception to them coming into his store together. Um, he threatens the young black girl. The priest pushes her out of the way, and he takes the bullet, and he dies, right? And so um, my mother was a teacher at a small public school, Amanda F. McCoy Elementary School, which I remember very well. I went there, all-black school. I went there first, second, and part of third grades. And um, uh, she was preparing to march, she and all of her friends. And her principal, uh, a black man, um, had said to her, um, Robert E. Starr, uh, he said, you know, the administrators have told me downtown that if you march, I have to fire you. And so, you know, 
my mother talked to her parents uh, and they said, well, you know, as long as we have a roof over our heads, you and the girls will have a roof over your heads. And as long as we have food to eat, you three will not starve. Right? So she expected, you know, all of her friends, these black teachers to march. But when we got to the site, there were no other black people in that march. Oh. It was just us. Now, when we got to the rally site, there definitely were black people who spoke. And there were probably others who had come in their cars, but they did not march. Oh. And I can remember being very confused because we had been told our whole lives, be very wary of white people. You know, never allow yourself to be alone with a white person. Um, and there were very few opportunities for that to happen anyway. But there was a, a white man who owned a store uh, in our neighborhood, and we were forbidden to go in that store, although my sister and I would sneak in there occasionally and buy candy with our friends. Um, but, you know, he would follow the black kids, you know, like we were, you know, like we were thieves, even though we always had money, you know, to pay for our yeah. candy. Um, and he would never give you, he also sold like, you know, large pickles and he wouldn't give you the big one that you wanted. He'd always give you the smallest one. Um, but when we would go downtown, uh, and that was a rare occasion, you know, again, it's a Sunday best yeah. on your best behavior, but you knew to stay close to the adults. You didn't wander around the store like my kids do. My kids just disappear because it's divorce. But you stay close because things could happen. You, you could be insulted. You could be injured. And things could happen very quickly, and there'd be no recourse. Yeah. So we understood that. So here we are at this march with a sea of white people. You know, like, oh my gosh, what do we do? And on the edges of the march, you know, on the sidewalks along the street are white people with bottles and chains and bats, and they're spitting on us. Oh yes, this was, wow. this, was this was real. <laughs> um, and so the white people who were near us, many of them really young folks, but the people of every age said, you know, you all move to the middle, move to the middle of the street so you won't be as exposed. And so it was very head spinning for me. I mean, I'm like, I don't know, nine years old, maybe 10 years old. These are more white people than I've seen in my life except on television. And yet I'm seeing, you know, it's, it's, it's like a perfect, wonderful lesson for a kid. Yeah. All white people aren't the same. You know, there are people here who are upset not just with us but with all these white people who are marching um but you know we were learning my sister and i kind of learning this vocabulary beginning to understand how all this worked yeah and i just wish that some of that any of that had been taught in school yeah you know that that there were these nuances that it wasn't just all black all white you know that i mean i was an adult it's embarrassing to say uh, before I realized that abolitionists were not all good guys in white hats. I just assumed that all abolitionists, from what I had learned in school, wanted black people to have civil rights, wanted black people to be able to own property, wanted black people to be able to bring their cases to court, even if they were cases brought against white people. Not yeah. so. It, it, it may even be the case that the majority of white abolitionists were, you know, determined to end the institution of slavery but as far as they were concerned black people were second or third class citizens and they never wanted them to learn to read and write i mean after all who's going to serve you those mint juleps you know who's going to work in your kitchen who is going to you know serve the beer in your tavern in the north 
Yeah. Um, you know, they, you know, many, many people wanted an underclass. And, you know, we had the, the fortune or misfortune to be marked by our skin. It's like an easy way to say, oh, what is all of those people will be the underclass. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, when I, when I think about my own lived experience, there's a lot of nuance there, but there wasn't always someone present to point out these things. Um, and I think all of us have had those moments, but without reflection, they kind of pass. I mean, I don't know, have you in your own life had you know, these experiences? I mean, yes, absolutely. Especially recently, you look in like the midst of like, the, like, the Black Lives Matter movement really being stronger, you look back at other events and have like a different perception of what they were than like you realize at the time, especially as like a white person who knows a lot of other white people. Like there are events that you think of that at the time seemed normal, but like in hindsight, you see it very differently now. Yeah, I, you know, my sister reminded me that um, when we were kids, the only place that you could eat out as a black person that was not owned by a black person was uh, a bus station because that was a public place, uh, right? And so this is where uh, Greyhound and Trailblazer yeah. whatever, and we would actually go to the bus station on Sundays for the purpose of having dinner out. You know, we're, our family was making... Um, you know, making a point yeah. of, you know, going to dinner at this place where we were allowed to go. And there was always a bit of a kerfuffle, you know, you know, are we going to serve them? You know, which table will they get? We put them next to the kitchen. That was for years, you know, that uh -huh. was the black table, the ones that were next to the kitchen that were loudest. Um, but yes, I mean, I absolutely do recall, um, you know, all of our lives that way. I mean, you know, you couldn't live in certain neighborhoods because there were restrictive covenants. Our family actually integrated uh, the neighborhood that we lived in, and oh my goodness, that was eventful. Um, you know, my sister talks about our never, never neighbors. You know, so people who moved out the day we moved in. Oh my God! So that they could say that they never lived near black people. They never lived on the street with black people. Um, the, you know, the, the, the day or two after we moved in, someone or ones convinced the city, a city, uh, the driver of a city trash truck to dump a city trash, city sanitation truck load of trash in our front yard. Oh my God. An entire city garbage truck of trash in our front yard. Um, our, we had a huge uh, uh, picture window in the living room and it was broken so many times my mother, who could not afford it found the money somehow to send my sister and me to the only camp we ever went to so that we would not be um, you know so we would not be uh, you know privy to these things yeah. we would ride our bicycles in, our, in this neighborhood and white male teenagers would light a cigarette and lean way out of their cars and try to burn us on our arms, on our bicycles, as they drove by. Um, and then we would ride our uh, bicycles to the bookmobile. It's about a 
10 or 12 block ride on our bicycles. And uh, this is long before backpacks were a thing. My yeah. mother had made us these uh, little saddlebags and they were cloth. And so there was a uh, pocket in the front and a pocket in the back that we had our books in. And every Saturday uh, that the bookmobile was in place, we would ride uh, to, to exchange our books. And there was a, a, an older white man who lived in a house that had a screened in porch. And we would see him stand up and he would leave and he would go someplace where we couldn't see him. But then a huge German shepherd would come out from around the back and chase us. And we would pedal like crazy, pedal like crazy trying to outrace this dog. And this would happen week after week after week. And then one Saturday, I wasn't fast enough. And the dog jumped up and pulled me down to the floor, to the ground off my bike. And my sister's like beating this dog, you know, with her saddlebag, right? Yeah. And, and the dog didn't bite me. And, and, and so I think the saddlebag probably protected me, but I'm screaming, you know, and she's screaming. And eventually, um, I, don't, I don't remember if he called the dog back, but the dog went back. But he's standing watching this, right? Jim Crow. Um, well, that's that's horrible. Thank you for uh, you <laughs> thank know, you for sharing. And then integrating that. schools. Um, yeah. You know, my whole generation was involved in integrating schools, blacks and whites, um, at that time. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, if you think about it, too, um, to the people, two two of the longest lived people who were enslaved in this country that we know of. Um, see the man's name was Cudjo Lewis Cudjo Lewis so so there was a a slave ship Clotilda that uh, brought illegally uh, Africans from Benin to Alabama who were then sold mostly in Alabama Um, he was a teenager when he was brought here he died in 1935 and the woman, I'm going to say her name was Rindosi, died in 1937. Wow. So both of my parents could have known them. Yeah. Both of my parents could have known someone who had been enslaved in this country. Um, you know, we include in our book, From Here to Equality, the story of Hortense McClinton, who lives today. She is 101 years old. She has a birthday coming up, actually. Uh, this month, her father was a slave. Wow. Her father was born a slave. So when you think generationally, slavery was not that long ago. Yeah. And there are many people for whom uh, the enslaved ancestor was only two generations or three generations away. But certainly the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, the legacy of the atrocities, the slights, the discrimination that continues to this day is very much with us. You know, slavery is a crucible from which all of these horrors flow, but it's very much with us. Wow. That's, thank you so much for sharing all that. Even like, even as I was trying to make the point about how like these things aren't that long ago, like into like that conversation right there that's like so eye-opening for me it's like it gives me such a different perspective so thank you i mean i was thinking about things like um 
I don't want to malign the group. I, I think it was Campfire Girls uh, uh-huh. that my sister uh, was a member of. And, um, you know, they're having some celebratory event and they want to have it at the country club. Surprise! The country club doesn't admit black people. Right? Yeah. Some of the girls went anyway. So it's like, oh, okay. So we're not all a group. And we're not all bound by, you know, whatever promises we've made as campfire girls. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the whole thing about racism. You know, you don't have to be um, brazenly bigoted to benefit from white privilege. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything extreme. But every day you have opportunities every day you have um, ways of being in the world that are yours simply because you're not black and that's you know I think an important thing for all of us to understand um, you know no one wants to be um, no one wants to be well that's not true uh, many people don't want to be on the wrong side of history um, Yet it's hard sometimes for them to see how they, how how you know how can I as an individual make change, and you know I would say to them you know two things, um, look at the communities formal and informal to which you belong, your family, your school, your ultimate frisbee group, um, your college newspaper, uh, good work by the way, um, you know and and ask yourself. Uh, you know, is this a group that can advocate for a national reparations program? Is this a group that I can influence to lobby and petition Congress? Right? Yeah. But also ask yourself, you know, who are the thought leaders that we consult when we have questions, when we have uh, contracts to let? Who do we who do we call? Who are the members of our groups? You know, when a hire, you know, when a hiring opportunity presents itself, who do you hire? Yeah. Um, you know, get your own house in order. I mean, all of us have many, many houses that we have the privilege to affiliate, wish to affiliate, and we we have a lot of influence, and we we, we fear that we don't. Um, I think all of us are afraid of being excluded. But um, I think it was Elma Lewis who said, you know, it's important to spend your time not fighting all the time, but identifying your tribe, you know, find the people who agree with your direction and work together. Yeah. Uh, they're out there. Um, you just need to identify them and be guided together. Together. All right, I have to, I have to run, but thank you so much. This has been amazing. Well, thank you very much much for asking me Julian it's been fun fun. yeah it really has I wish you all the best thank you so much so that's all for this week thank you for listening uh go follow us wherever you get your podcasts and like and rate and subscribe and go follow us on instagram at we've got next pod thank you um to make sure you tune in next week next wednesday where the person that i interview all i'm gonna say is had a very different upbringing than kirsten mullen had so That's your little preview, and tune in next week. Thanks.